0: and suggest future topics and guests. It is our distinct pleasure to welcome to global law and business, Akshat Ivatya. Akshat is an immigration attorney at our firm at Harris Bricken, where he assists companies that are trying to secure work visas for their foreign born talent, he also helps permanent residents preserve their status and become naturalized U.S. citizens. Akshat emigrated from India and is a naturalized U.S. citizen. He has lived on four continents and speaks
2: five languages. Akshat, bienvenido al programa. Muchísimas gracias, Fred. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. To get things started. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience?
0: And in particular, I'd love to hear about how your own
2: experience as an immigrant impacts your legal practice. So I'm a business attorney. Um, I help companies and their employees in their immigration and mobility needs. Um, my clients turn to me for you know, help in hiring, transferring, retaining talent, um, and basically remaining compliant with U.S. immigration and labor laws. Um, I also help employees and their families obtain permanent residence and become naturalized U.S. citizens. Um, I really really value being both an attorney and counselor at law. You know, these are uh, the attorney role allows me to represent clients um, in their legal matters, take them from point A to point B. Uh, But the counselor at law role is less direct. Um, but in my opinion, it's, it's just as important. Um, it's about listening to the clients. It's about understanding their both short and long-term objectives, um, advising them about those potential consequences, you know, helping them with their strategy and uh, making sure that you have a direct line of communication with them at all times. Um, in virtually everything I do, I do pull from my experience as an immigrant to the U.S. I've also um, spent time both uh, living and uh, studying or working in Spain and Argentina. And uh, so in virtually everything I do, I do pull from my uh, experiences as uh, an immigrant uh, to the United States and also my study abroad um, and exchange abroad experiences, both in Spain and Argentina. Um, I feel from those experiences that immigrants have to balance their hopes, their dreams. They have to be diligent. They have to be patient. They have to be proactive um, Anytime that they're seeking a new life um, or a temporary stay in another country. And that journey itself is humbling. And I do feel very privileged to be able to navigate them in those voyages.
1: Akshay, you refer to the U.S. visa classification as an alphabet soup. Can you give us an overview of how visas are classified? What are some of the main categories that an informed person should know about?
2: Yes. So the U.S. visa system is lettered from A to W. And in the business bucket, you find uh, exchange and training visas, study visas, employment and investment visas. And in the family bucket, you find visas for fiancés, for immediate relatives. And these are the spouses, children and parents of U.S. citizens. There also are visas for victims of trafficking and crime and diversity visas for Individuals of those nations that have a historically low rate of immigration to the US. So within these buckets, you have both non immigrant visas and immigrant visas. The non immigrant visas are of a temporary nature, and the immigrant visas provide a pathway towards permanent residence known as a green card. Um, Non immigrant work visas essentially require that there is a bona fide need and that the individual meets each regulatory criteria for that particular visa. So you have um, the most common non-immigrant visas are E2, which is for investors of countries with which the U.S. has treaties of uh, friendship, commerce, and navigation. You have H-1B specialty occupation visas. Um, You have J-1s for exchange visitors, postdoctoral researchers, au pairs. Um, J-1 is an umbrella category that includes a lot of uh, short-term exchanges, uh, interns. Uh, then there is a visa for uh, intra-company transferees. That's the L-1 visa. You have the O-1 visa for individuals with extraordinary ability in the arts, sciences, business. Um, you have a visa specifically for athletes and support personnel. That's the P-1. Uh, there is a religious worker visa, R-1. And uh, lastly, there's a TN visa, which is uh, essentially for U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Um, So NAFTA, as it used to be called, um, now it's known as the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Uh, It's for professionals from uh, these countries to come and work in the U.S. uh, on a temporary basis. So that's non-immigrant side. The immigrant work visas require the employer to prove that the you know uh, labor market, the U.S. labor market, and these are American workers, green card holders, um, were not available after a labor test was performed, um, thereby paving the way open for uh, the immigrant uh, candidates to get uh, green cards. Uh, the immigrant work visas also include uh, for you know for people who have extraordinary ability, and they can bypass this labor certification. Uh, process this good faith test of the labor market, uh, and the uh, the extraordinary ability process allows them to get a green card uh, by by providing evidence of of their their qualifications.
1: Would you say that the us marketplace, if I can use that word, is our visa marketplace, on par with other countries? Are we more advanced, less advanced? Are we more stringent, less stringent? Can you give us kind of a global lay of of what that looks like from your perspective?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, I'd like to start by saying that, of course, the US has been built on the backbone of immigrants. Um, even today, from the food we eat, the house we live in, the technology we use, uh, the influential role that immigrants play in each of those aspects just cannot be overlooked. In my opinion, the US does remain a nation of immigrants. You know, no other country can surpass the combination of educational and entrepreneurial opportunities, upward mobility, the institutional stability, the heterogeneity, and global recognition that the US has. Um, of course, in tough economic times throughout history, you know, we've seen that immigrants are always the first to be blamed. Um, and, and in that sense, we have experienced that in recent times, the USCIS decided to remove a passage from its mission statement um, that indicated the words, a nation of immigrants. Um, it was move that was intended to show a change in tone um, and it was a harbinger of more alarming changes that the agency would uh, experience in in, in the following months. Uh, But ultimately, I feel that, you know, U.S. cannot shed itself of its immigrant background. It is built on the backbone of of immigrants. And, um, you know, at the same time, I feel that no country can also rest on its laurels um, and continue to remain in that privileged position. I feel that the more insular that U.S. has become The more it seeds to other nations that are trying to compete for the same talent pool. Um, And, you know, I have two concrete examples. I see this in the immigration context uh, frequently where um, individuals who attend foreign nationals who attend uh, American universities, and if the immigration uh, system is not welcoming, does not allow them to get work visas. Um, then they look for opportunities outside the U.S. And uh, our loss, United States' loss, has been uh, Canada's gain. You know, Canada has really benefited from taking on, taking in rather, uh, those individuals who uh, have U.S. degrees but were unable to find employment, did not get their work visas approved. Um, And and so they have uh, a provincial nominee program, that has become a very popular option for skilled workers to immigrate to Canada. Um, there are also case studies uh, of private Canadian companies swooping in for highly skilled foreign-born workers uh, whose visa applications have been denied. Um, they, they then they are moved to Canada, um, and you know the workers then are contracted back to their U.S. companies from Canada. They they they're they're fast tracked to get work visas and essentially they're providing their services remotely from Canada they're in the same time zone oftentimes and um it is an arrangement that is a win-win because the US client and customer uh can can get uninterrupted access to them uh and at the same time these individuals don't have to worry about work visas and ultimately their back end um payroll, legal issues, tax, HR, all that is handled by Canadian companies that is uh, that is uh, arranging for this particular type of relationship. And I think that Canada is betting on the fact that foreign workers that come to Canada because of their U.S. visa problems, they will opt, certainly in the long run, to settle there, to raise families there, and generate enough um, opportunities uh, and entrepreneurial uh, ventures that that simply put, you know, will uh, help Canada, you know, bridge the gap between itself and the U.S. So um, that's Canada. And and the other experience that I have is with uh, Chile. Uh, I feel like the Chilean government uh, has been investing in technology, infrastructure, modern connectivity, um, global integration, and, you know, they're breaking down tax and institutional barriers, um, educating its own citizens um, to, to speak English, to communicate in English. Um, and uh, it's not an accident. You know, If you look at their economy, just the way that they've had a high growth rate in Latin America, uh, in fact, the highest growth rate in Latin America, um, they are the first Latin American country to join the OECD. Um, there's low country risk. Uh, there's generally an institutional and financial stability. Um, it's a very pro-business environment um, that has attracted uh, the big tech. Uh, you have Microsoft, Oracle, Google, and Amazon Web Services. They are all uh, have operations in Chile. And their presence has attracted um, mid to smaller companies that, that, that uh, operate in that ecosystem. So Canada and Chile are just two examples of where, you know, if, if a talent pool cannot operate in a particular country, that pool will operate wherever it can. And I think those countries have recognized that and and, and made structural changes uh, to accommodate that talent. Aksha,
0: to what extent, if any, do you think the pandemic has accelerated these trends? I ask because over the course of the past two years, I've seen... Um, countries advertising the fact that they are good locations for uh, the, what do they call them, digital, digital nomads and, and things of that sort. And most of what I've seen is d- does seem to have a certain short-term quality to it. I, I, I don't think any of that has has really developed, at least as far as I know, into more, more structured programs that allow um, digital nomads to, to eventually opt for, uh, for residence or or citizenship elsewhere. But do you think that when we look back in a few years, we will see that the, the COVID-19 pandemic helped spur some of these, um, movements
2: of, of talent around the world? That's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, if you look at it, um, As a trend in the US itself first, where, uh, you know, the ability to work from anywhere is essentially allowing people to not remain, you know, in pockets, uh, in, in the large cities, but instead to go to places that are more affordable, that can offer, uh, more space. Um, and that flexibility, that ability to, to, uh, you know, have a source of income. A higher income, and then the ability to live in a in an area that has a low cost of living. That really is is, uh, is a trend that I see in the United States. Um, and if you then extrapolate from there, and you see that same trend happening in the world as well, with individuals um, who are more adventurous uh, end up, you know, traveling to uh, more exotic locales. And I think the the um, the driver there is not so much the affordability, but also the quality of life. Um, And so when you see, you know, people um, moving to islands and moving to uh, tropical countries where they can, you know, they can work during the work hours, but they can truly enjoy what the country has to offer. um, That I think is here to stay to some extent. I, I think that, you know, there are trends, like all trends, um, they're not going to continue on forever. Um, I do believe strongly in the pendulum effect, where um, ultimately it's going to have to recalibrate. And so, these individuals um, who are, you know, working in uh, remote locales at some point might decide, well, this is—I've had enough of my adventure. I want to go back to the U.S. Um, or alternatively. I don't want to work for my U.S. employer. I'd rather work here locally. I'd rather set up a company here. I like it here. I'm going to raise a family here. So I think the pandemic has really made it possible for people to become more adventurous. I think that, you know, from a technology side, and I have a lot of technology clients, um, when the pandemic happened, uh, there were no issues for us to have meetings and to communicate through Zoom or Teams because They're the ones who had enabled that particular ability. So uh, I think that the pandemic has helped more people get used to that form of communication. And, um, you know, the more people hear about uh, adventures that their friends or family members have taken, I think that people. Once it's safe to travel, might want to do that and say, "Look, I, I can, I can cut the umbilical cord. I don't have to be here. Um, I can be anywhere else, and this is a great opportunity. and And I'll try it." So, I, I, I think that uh, that is most definitely a positive trend, in my opinion, that has come about as a result of the of the pandemic.
0: So, Akshat, let's turn to the big picture. You mentioned that change uh, in the um, USCIS. Mission statement, and how that um perhaps reflected broader trends that were that were going on at the time since then we've we've had a change of administration, and there is certainly talk about how there's been a a change when it comes to to the immigration policy. I guess the first thing we should do is check in with you and see if from your perspective you do see uh, a change when it comes to immigration, and if there is, is it a change both in tone and in substance, or is it mostly uh, a matter of, of of tone? And and related to this, um, maybe sort of stepping back even further, uh, how much did things really change under the the Trump administration as opposed to earlier administrations?
2: Yeah. um, You know, anytime that we talk about how much things have changed, um, I think it's important to look at where they were. And if we look back under the Trump administration, you know, that also felt like a drastic change uh, compared to how things were done in prior administrations, both Democrat and Republican. Um, so for Trump, uh, you know, His campaign platform essentially was to protect the American worker, um, which was both reducing the number of legal immigrants and eliminating the H-1B visa program. He wanted to institute a merit-based immigration system. Um, And, you know, so there was talk of in some uh, audiences, there was talk of eliminating the H-1B visa program and other business friendly um, audiences, he had mentioned uh, limiting visas, H one B visas to only the highest skilled workers, which translated to the highest paid workers. Um, and and there was a question of also retribution and deterrence. Um, you know, stop issuing visas to everyone from those countries that refused to take back uh, the individuals who had immigrated uh, unlawfully from those countries. So uh, a way to kind of punish them. Uh, if they refuse to cooperate and take back those people, so certainly those themes um, resonated with the base. And uh, to put those policies into effect, to put that that plan into effect, um, he relied on on advisors and on data that um, helped you know make it easier to um, institute those changes, to propel those changes. Um, it, Ultimately, though, what ended up happening is that, you know, no new immigration laws were passed. And so everything, uh, all the changes that came about were um, through administrative action. So there were, you know, expansive uh, executive orders, um, for instance, the Buy American, Hire American Order Baja, um, which uh, just, you know, allowed the adjudicators. With virtually a blank check to to deny immigration benefits, to deny visa applications, um, without having to fully justify, um, you know what is might be an issue with a particular case. Um, just that, in our opinion, um, this is in violation of the the Baha'i executive order. Uh, we would see that often. Um, there were also agency internal agency memoranda. Uh, these were uh, crafted to uh, remove deference, uh, to rescind deference that's given to previously approved petitions. Um, in other words, you know, if you are applying for an extension of status, then the prior petition that gave you that status carries weight. And instead of that, the, uh, the agency memoranda said, nope, we're not going to give any deference to prior petitions. Um, every time you file a petition, any petition, including an amendment, including an extension, um, we're going to review it de novo as if it's been submitted the first time, and it resulted in a lot of, you know, crazy decisions, um, an impact uh, on 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 foreign nationals, many uh, uh, it's individuals from India and China who are stuck in visa backlogs. And that's because there's a per country cap on these on these uh, visas, uh, and because of the uh, the demand for visas from those countries, there's there's a huge backlog which which runs years, um, and uh, individuals in the meantime can extend their H one B status, uh, remain in the U S. until they get a green card, um, and uh, for those individuals, there was uh, you know there were decisions where they may have had extensions approved over the last seven years, but then all of a sudden they would be stuck with a denial because no deference was given to those prior petitions and things were being renewed de novo. Um, and uh, in, in addition to that, the administration had also imposed, began to impose in-person interview requirement for all employment-based green card cases. And uh, and that was something very novel. Um, it was created, but it achieved the end result, which was to frustrate the system, to slow things down, you know, it's like constructive eviction, where a landlord doesn't evict you, but um, instead locks you out, turns off the heat, doesn't deliver the mail, you know, makes you fed up with the whole process with the with your living arrangement, that you say, you know what, uh, this is not worth it, I'm out of here, um, and that was essentially the objective, uh, and it worked. Uh, these in-person interview requirements. Uh, not only slowed things down for uh, employment-based immigrants. Uh, so, as context, prior to that, you know, these employment-based cases would be adjudicated by a service center. Um, you know, the employers would have gone through extreme vetting uh, and and uh, documented the eligibility, done the labor market test. I mean, gone through a lot of lot of different requirements, satisfied them, and then the end result is that the green card would have been mailed to the applicant. Um, instead by imposing the in-person interview requirement prior to the issuance of the green card. Uh, what resulted was that the local offices were overwhelmed with these uh, interviews and it slowed things down also for family immigrants, uh, marriage-based applicants, uh, those who are applying for naturalization. Um, just to give you an example in the Seattle area, the uh, processing time for a citizenship for naturalization application was typically about four months, four to six months max. And when these in-person interview uh, requirement was imposed for employment cases, that processing time ballooned to about 18 months. So, um, so most certainly it had a very uh, negative impact across the board. Um, the administration had also tried, you know, controversial rulemaking where they did not necessarily follow the uh, administrative procedures act. Um, they ended up uh, relying on faulty data and uh, at the conclusion of those four years by that time uh, many of these proposed rules were uh, defeated in court um, so so under trump it made it you know very difficult for businesses and for individuals to rely on um, and 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 consider the immigration process predictable, and and that unpredictability essentially led to many of these foreign nationals, uh, as I've mentioned before, going to Canada or to other countries. Now, under Biden, you know it was easy for him to come in, and at least his platform was that I'm not going to do what the other guy did. The idea also was to to uh, remove some of these institutional barriers, not only rescind the executive orders. But also um, reward entrepreneurship. I think that's been that that was a key aspect of the Biden platform. Under his proposal, there were uh, significant uh, advancements for entrepreneurs to uh, immigrant entrepreneurs to set up their own companies um, and get visas as a result of that incubation. There was also a desire to um, uh, you know support legislation that that removed caps, uh, removed spouses and children from per country caps. And, uh, and this I think is important because uh, as I mentioned, you know, citizens of India and China, people born in India and China, uh, when they are going through the immigrant process, they have to wait significantly longer than their neighbors. You know, the Indian and Chinese workers are essentially penalized because American employers tend to look for them when filling positions. Um, and and that's not really fair. And not only that, but you know, if you have a family, the spouse and children are also counted against the you know the the, the, the park country cap. So removing that, uh, uh, re- removing spouses and children from that equation, that is something that that uh, was part of the Biden proposal. And uh, to back up. You know, his his proposal, he uh, essentially turned to people who were, you know, of immigrant backgrounds and exceptional bureaucrats. Um, He appointed uh, the first immigrant and Latino secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, um, who was a former deputy secretary for DHS uh, during the Obama administration. He was also the former director of the USCIS. So he had the institutional knowledge um, and the immigrant background to say, look, the tone is going to be different. We are uh, going to spend time, resources and train workers uh, within the agencies. So once uh, Biden took office, you know, he had promised that he would take certain actions on his first day in office. and, And he lived up to that. He rescinded the travel bans. Uh, that were in place at that time. Um, And on day one, he sent an immigration bill to Congress, the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021, sponsored by Bob Menendez from New Jersey and Linda Sanchez from California. Um, And that legislation uh, included provisions to reduce lengthy visa backlogs, to improve protections for uh, immigrant whistleblowers, uh, allowed for STEM graduates, uh, doctoral STEM graduates from US universities um, to not be counted against the uh, per country limits. Uh, and there were a lot of other proposals that were common sense proposals that were designed to make the system less frustrating and to reward people for having immigrated lawfully. Um, but I think the big problem that the Biden administration has faced uh, is that you know the pandemic has not gone away and then the momentum has waned. You know, the Delta variant um, certainly had a huge impact. Uh, USCIS offices were closed. Consular posts, Fred, you mentioned, you know, from your prior experience as a consular officer, um, what we heard from other consular officers is that, you know, during the pandemic, they didn't have the flexibility of working from home because um, they were, you know, working on sensitive material. Um, they did not have you know, the the security, built-in security uh, in the VPN to be able to review visa applications from home. So they were stuck with going in, um, and if the countries in which they were had restrictions, then that meant that the offices were closed and the cases were uh, just piling up and sitting there. Of course, the political polarization um, has impacted uh, the Biden administration as well you know, the battle not only between Republicans and Democrats, but also within the party between the moderate and progressive Democrats, um, the uh, the the battle between, you know, doing things for legal immigrants versus doing things for those who are here unlawfully, um, that is also, uh, you know, reason for paralysis, if you will. So I describe what has happened under the Biden administration as marching in place, you know. Um, There was a lot of uh, desire to to undo things and, uh, you know, bring about meaningful changes. But because of both the political situation and the pandemic, that has not really uh, come about as we uh, as we thought it would. Um, So for, you know, immigration practitioners, I think what we're relying on a lot more is um, litigation. You know, I just just running up to a parent and complaining about a sibling, um, that's essentially the, the the practice that we have to engage in. Um, you know, look, we filed this X days ago. Uh, it's been pending well beyond the reasonable time. You know, we ask for the court to, to step in and and, and help uh, with this particular adjudication. And that has resulted in, in uh, cases being reviewed. Uh, we also rely on uh, contacting congresspersons um, to see if they can move things along that might be stuck somewhere, uh, and uh, and you know many of these uh, provisions under Trump that were not already dead uh, by the time that uh, Biden took office, uh, additional litigation has come about that has um, that has sped things along, uh, forced the USCIS to adjudicate uh, unused visas. Um, so you know the the moral here is that. As immigration lawyers, we cannot just sit there. We are advocates in that true sense of the word. And um, we want to be able to use any and all means possible to make sure that our client is not the one without a chair when the when the music stops.
1: I'd love to hear about your experiences in Argentina and Spain. I, I've heard... A few stories from time to time, but uh, I'm very interested in in what you found. Uh, you know, you learned the languages or the language uh, Spanish and probably different dialects or different word choices. Uh, can you tell a little bit about uh, your time there?
2: Yeah, those were uh, those were both wonderful formative experiences for me. Um, I first went to Barcelona while um, I was in college on a semester-long study abroad. Um, I lived with a host family there. Um, and it's only a slight exaggeration when I say that I learned more in my first six days there than I did in six years between, between high school and college in the U.S. Um, you know, living with a host family most definitely helped me. Um, the family was, uh, you know, insistent that I speak the language, um, so much so that at times we would not begin eating at the, at the dinner table unless I can talk about how my day was and, um, you know, say what I'm going to be eating. So uh, I learned, I learned real quick. Um, It was also my uh, first time in Europe and uh, I was smitten. You know, I, for me, the Mediterranean culture mixes elements of both the East and the West. Um, My upbringing in the East, but uh, my immigration to the West, you know, I, I value both the East and the West and, and and those experiences that I've had in the Mediterranean, in Barcelona, in Spain. Uh, what I found was uh, that the culture was had similarities with, with the Eastern cultures because of the deep bonds that exist both you know, within and between families, uh, neighbors and friends. And then uh, also because the societies were less mobile, um, less nomadic. You know, in the U.S., it's, it's quite common for families to, to move. Um, you know, at the drop of a dime, if you will, but but uh, both in Spain and in, in, uh, in India, where I grew up, that was not the case. So uh, that lack of mobility or the lack of uh, just picking up and moving does build stronger, deeper relationships. Um, but the Mediterranean also, to me, represented the West in many ways because of the progressiveness that I observed both in the mentality of the people and the institutions at large. Um, for example, I could never imagine, you know, living at home with my parents as a teenager in India and being able to regularly stay out until the wee hours of the morning with my friends. But but that was the case in Spain. In fact, my host mother, who was uh, an elderly woman, had no problem, you know, unlocking the door when I would uh, get back in the early hours of the morning. So uh, so it was a very rich, enlightening experience for me. Um, you know, after the Spain experience, I was bit by the travel bug. And then a few years later, I got the uh, chance to be in in Buenos Aires, Argentina for a year long uh, Rotary Foundation ambassadorial scholarship. So this was kind of like serving as a student ambassador, taking courses. And uh, the most important premise of that particular uh, scholarship was that I had to give uh the presentations at various rotary clubs in uh, metropolitan Buenos Aires uh, if you've been there, you know it's 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 a sprawling city and there are more than 40 rotary clubs in the area. so um, my calendar was pretty much booked um, and virtually every other weekend or every weekend i would I would be invited to speak at different rotary clubs and uh, and I came back with a very very strong command of Spanish. I felt more comfortable. Um, in Spanish at, 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 at one point than I did in English. Um, and for them, you know, it was also a very uh, culturally enriching experience. Here they had somebody who had lived in India, was was living in the US, had studied in Spain, um, and happened to be in in Argentina. So it was a mutually enriching opportunity um, and and I hold that particular experience very fondly. In both Spain and Argentina, um, while I was there, I got the opportunity to travel in, in, in South America. I traveled to Uruguay, Brazil, Chile. So, you know, came to the realization as most of us um, who, who have traveled uh, and lived abroad, the more you travel, the more you realize just how much remains to be seen. So um, those experiences were, uh, you know, uh, they've left a deep influence uh, in me and in, in how I view the world actually the fact remains that there,
0: there's so much more that that we wanted to talk about and we'll, we'll we'll just have to have you back on at at some point to to continue talking about um the, the topics that we've discussed and the ones that that are still on on our list um but before we let you go we'd like to ask you for any recommendations you might have for our listeners
2: yeah so you know, I have a preference for nonfiction, for business, for biographies. Um, I like to read, but increasingly, I I rely on audiobooks through my Libby app. I highly recommend that app, which allows users to borrow books from their local libraries for 21 days at a time. Um, you know, my favorites are Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, you all know a Harari. Um, Angela Duckworth. I really enjoy reading those authors. But the recommendation that I that I have, what I'm currently reading, and I really find it fascinating, um, is a book by um, an American, Erin Meyer, who is a professor at INSEAD in France, and it's called The Culture Map, um, and it's a look at how people from different cultures communicate and consider ideas at work, um, and you know what I'm seeing from that particular book is that national culture and the upbringing play a deeper perhaps more influential role in communication than does organizational culture and she goes on to you know list various uh, criteria um, communication evaluation leadership decision making you know how are the, the how is that how are the styles different? depending on where you were born and where you were raised so i highly recommend that book i I don't want to give away um its its premise but it's really uh, a fascinating look and especially where i deal with clients from all over the world it's really interesting and um, informational for me to see how how uh, how people communicate and to read between the lines
0: thank you for that that sounds like a fascinating read that i'll have to to check out uh, Jonathan, seems like you also have a fascinating read for us this week.
1: I do. This is a it's a long-form article, but not extremely long. You'd probably knock it out in 15 minutes or so. And it's by Gregor McQueen. Uh, the article is called Weighing the Pros and Cons of Doing Business in Xi Jinping's China. And this article is about seven or eight months old now uh, from early 2021. But the principles are still salient and in uh In good business fashion, there are a lot of great call outs, um, including at the end a kind of a scenario overview showing how strong is China right now, where has it made good advancements, and where is it where is it flagging behind the u s uh, it's just a nice summary uh, if if you're like me from time to time, and you wonder what are smart people saying about Uh, the current state of China, and is it worth doing business there? This is a great article for an executive team to read and sit back and ponder where are we now with respect to China, what do we think China is going to be doing in the next five to 10 years, and do we want to be there? And if we want to be there, what's the right way to be there? So weighing the pros and cons of doing business in Xi Jinping's China. Fred, what do you have for us today? I'd like to recommend
0: a YouTube channel today called Chief McCoy the content uh, producer here is a filipino chief engineer uh, on on board um, cargo ships and this is a world that was at the same time intriguing to, to me um but at the same time one where t- there's just not a lot of information out there especially this kind of audio visual content that allows you to to see firsthand what's what's happening um, so, if, if you have any interest at all in the world of, of, of shipping, uh, all of the work that goes into keeping this, the, these ships running, uh, the, the the logistics involved, and uh, again, if you have any interest in in that world and want to want to see the world of, of cargo shipping from, from the inside, check out Chief McCoy's channel. On that note, uh, I'd like to thank Akshat for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Jonathan, so
1: much for having me uh, on. It's a privilege. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.